Since our ancient ancestors hunted and gathered together, teamwork has let humans flourish. And even though we're isolated right now and can't physically meet, those same teams need to perform well. How can business teams evolve to stay effective in the isolated era? And what fundamental truths can teams not afford to forget? Let's build together. Welcome to Subject Matter. Hello and welcome to another episode of Subject Matter. This is episode 11 of season two. I'm your host, as always, Ben Bradbury. And for the next half an hour or so, whether you are listening or for the first time first time ever, I can say, watching as well on our new YouTube channel, you can find that via my name, Ben Bradbury. We are going to be taking you through a new way of understanding the changing world that we're a part of and understanding yourself a little bit better. Our focus for this episode is teams and the art and science of bringing people together to get results. Now, before we go anything any further, let me just make one thing clear. We are inherently selfish. It's called survival of the fittest, not survival of the most. And so every human is ultimately out for number one. Now, Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, said no social animal is ever guided by the interests of the entire species to which it belongs. But if that's the case, then how can we flourish? Because the truth is, survival of the fittest or not, we need social cooperation. Great things are rarely achieved alone. Indeed, it was Henry Ford who said, coming together is a beginning, staying together is progress, and working together is success. So whether you're part of another company, or you're running your own, or you have dreams of starting one one day, you need to know that teams are the basic unit of productivity in a company. They are, teams are living, breathing organisms. And like a tree, they will give you fruit. But just like a tree as well, you have to nurture them with sunlight and water and careful investment before they can produce any real results. Now, as we're isolated right now, some of the ways that teams work will evolve but there will also be some parts that stay the same. And this episode is going to dig deep into that relationship. We're going to be going into the process of nurturing teams and how we can do that effectively in isolation. So if you're part of one, we'll be sharing some suggestions that you can use on how to improve the performance of those you work with and yourself as well. So why does building teams actually matter then? Well, let's take a step back first and learn from a couple of cautionary tales. If we look at the airline industry, we are presented with a pretty shocking statistic. Over 75% of airline accidents happen with crews flying together for the very first time. And that's because, quite frankly, they haven't got the necessary level of teamwork yet. They don't know how to work together. People are rarely high performers by themselves, it's the team that we surround ourselves with that often ends up being a big determinant of our performance. And this works both ways. In the case of the airline industry, the team wasn't strong enough and bad teamwork dragged them down. So what causes teams, like the first-time airline crews, to actually underperform then? 
Well, organizational psychologist Adam Grant points to one cause of team performance dropping, which is routine rigidity. In the case of the isolation era, process is good. Being able to have those regular habits that we can deliver on makes us consistent and makes us consistently able to make progress. But getting locked into a process for too long, that's dangerous. If we get comfortable with how things are done, that stops us innovating to find how they can be done better. Success becomes predictable and stagnation, well, it becomes more likely. So what can we learn from routine rigidity then? Well, when we're in isolation, it pays to make our own routines flexible. We can make up for a monotonous environment with different ways of approaching the day. So in my case, if you're watching, you'll be able to see my video studio, otherwise known as my office, otherwise known as my bedroom. I have one environment here at home, and it's up to me to make that more spontaneous and make that flexible and dynamic. So how do I do that? Well, I'm noticing right now that my energy is shifting from early morning and crushing the day very early on to nighttime working and burning the midnight oil. So instead of trying to push myself back into that own routine, I'm embracing it. I'm waking up a little bit later and working a little bit later, and I'm enjoying the new routine that I have. And I'm also on day two right now of a three-day fast. And it's giving me a lot of energy and a lot of clear thinking. Now, if I'm part of a team, I can share that with the other people who I work with, the writers and editors that I have on my team. I can say, hey, I'm fasting right now. Why don't you guys try this as well? Mix up your routines. So that's the first big takeaway, is to be dynamic and flexible in how we're actually approaching our work. There's a second cautionary tale here, though, from Elon Musk. Elon Musk, the semi-legendary founder of SpaceX and the CEO of Tesla, he is infamous for missing production deadlines with Tesla. In fact, from 2011 to 2016, sorry, Tesla has missed more than 20 production and financial targets, missing 10 goals by an average of almost a year. That is an insane delay for a publicly traded company. Now let's dig into that for a second. I want you to imagine in some far-flung reality that you're Elon Musk. You are one of a kind. You're an innovator once in a generation. Now I suspect if you're Elon Musk and you're innovating and performing at this level, you're going to want to build a team around you that builds a similar level of performance as well. And he expects, I'm sure, that level of performance and commitment from his staff as well. But the problem with that is, well, there's one overwhelming problem. None of the Tesla staff are Elon. They're all committed, they're talented, they're A players, but they're not him. And so he is having to meet his expectations with reality in real time. So what can we learn from Elon consistently missing production and financial deadlines? Well, if you're operating, if you're lucky enough to be operating at the level of the 1% of the 1%, don't expect the same output from your team. This especially applies if you're a founder yourself or you have dreams of leading your own company, because for every founder, the company is their baby. And no one is going to care about your baby as much as you do. That's just a fact. So remember to meter your level of performance and commitment relative to the level of the team. Don't expect everybody to be on that same level. 
But I'm going to balance that and caveat that by saying that speed matters in the isolation era. Everyone is scrambling to get things stable right now. So it's important to push ourselves as an outlier, and it's important to push our teams to perform as well. But we need to make sure that we are setting realistic deadlines for our projects and experiments. It's hard to work with someone who wants something done yesterday every single time. So the goal is to find a balance of stretching potential and supporting our teams as well. So there's two cautionary tales for us to learn on. First of all, let's turn to the characteristics that we do need to create high-performing teams. The first and overwhelming trait that I've found from my research is that whether you are a remote team or you're an in-person team, the team needs a goal. And this also applies if you're trying to build a community as well. I remember hosting an event in New York a couple of years ago, and we gave a panel on community building. And one of the very seasoned builders, the first thing he says was, you need a goal for your community. People need to show up and have an ideal that they're going to be moving towards. And recently, flipping now back to Teams, I was speaking to a client of mine. He's a former chief operating officer of a 450-person technology company. And he fundamentally believes when he's building his team for his company, two things. You need higher caliber talent with a higher purpose. And the sentence that he used to sum this up, which I love, is I would rather have an A team of B players than a B team of A players. So what does the A team mean? This means people who work hard, they have a similar ambition as well. But most importantly, above all else, they are aligned on the same goal. A-team members are smart enough to have other opportunities in the pipeline, but the thing that sets them apart is they choose to put your opportunity first and believe in your mission ahead of all else. Now, there's a great example of cooperation in the natural kingdom. Hornbills are a primary example of putting a higher purpose, a higher goal ahead of ourselves. So what does the hornbill do? Well, when a hornbill male and female bird mate with each other, the male will fly back to the female in the nest every single day, bringing her food and feeding her until their egg hatches. But what happens if by some unfortunate circumstance, the hornbill male dies? Well, what you might think in survival of the fittest is the female is left to fend for herself with pretty unfavorable odds. But the hornbills see things differently. A hornbill male will be attracted to the cries of a crying hornbill female, even if they didn't originally meet, and come and feed her instead until her egg hatches. Now, this principle is not only incredibly heartwarming, but fascinating for how teams work, because these high levels of cooperative breeding that's found in birds, in mammals, and other species are strongly associated with low annual adult mortality. The species literally does better if it cooperates. Hornbills manage to set a shared goal. They have that higher purpose, which is raising a young member of their species. And they set aside their differences to do so, which we so traditionally associate with the animal kingdom savagery. So what can we learn from these hornbills then? Well, let's take the time to define our goals. What is the goal of your team coming together? Define it specifically, because the other thing is that our timelines are going to be shrinking in the isolation era. 
with so much uncertainty, we are not sure what's going to be happening in a month's time, in two months' time, let alone six months' time. So define the goal on very narrow timelines. What are we going to accomplish as a team this week? What are we going to accomplish this month? Think more in terms of short-term experiments than long-term projects when it comes to setting these goals, and you're going to be able to go much further collectively than you ever could alone. This team-first attitude is manifested in the man known as the Trillion Dollar Coach. This man is the trusted coach to technology royalty. Let's see if the, any of these names are familiar to you. Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, Sheryl Sandberg. It's about as big as it gets. And this man, he actually didn't take a penny when he coached any of these people. That's what makes him such a category of one leader. His name was Bill Campbell. Bill believed in teams that acted as communities, putting aside their differences to focus on the good of the company first, having that shared goal. Now, when Bill worked with executives, it wasn't always easygoing. These executives would sometimes position their divisions or other organizational silos against each other in status conflicts to capture more resources and glory. These are people who were, frankly, short on time and long on ego. But there's a really interesting take that we can learn from Bill here because they said in the book Trillion Dollar Coach by Eric Schmidt that Bill's opposition to bullshitters wasn't as much about their dishonesty with others as it was their dishonesty with themselves. And this highlights Bill's philosophy with teams, which is that he's not concerned with the company first and foremost, he's concerned with the people behind the company. He puts the person first and the professional second. So as we learn Bill's story in this next segment, I want you to think about how you're viewing the team members in your company. You might be viewing them as colleagues, and that's completely fair enough. But just remember that in this isolated testing time, they are humans as well with beautifully complex lives, just like you and me. Now, Bill would get to know people as people first, and by doing so, he could get to know them as business people as well. So in internal meetings, Bill would never start with business. He'd always ask people what they did for the weekend. If they went on a trip, he'd ask for a trip report. And he'd like to say that you have to take the time to smell the roses, and the roses are your people. Those roses are never going to be able to blossom if you don't appreciate them for the beautiful spectacle that they are. Any gardener will know when they're raising a rose, it takes some time to step back and actually appreciate what we're doing in the moment. Roses aren't grown overnight. And in the same fashion, now that our barriers between home and work are blurring, your office is next to your bedroom, or in my case, even the same room that I'm in right now, we need to make sure that we're building better relationships with team members by addressing that personal side as well when we talk to them. We can ask them, how is life outside of work going? How are you adapting to this new isolated style of work? It doesn't have to be necessarily just about our careers. We can ask them, what new hobbies have you taken up? Have you had any interesting conversations, cooked any interesting meals, watched any interesting programs? There's such a dynamic diversity to our lives outside 
of our nine to five. And we would do well to remember that in this time because strengthening bonds with people will lead to better performing teams. A second big learning that we can get from Bill Campbell is that he took teams on trips. Now, these trips weren't for work productivity. They were to build relationships which make teams more productive. I want you to really appreciate the difference there between building a team for productivity and going on a trip to be more productive and building the relationship which allows you to become more productive. With all the trips that Bill took people on, the trips were not the goal of the communities. The communities were the goal of the trips. And that's because there's a direct correlation between fun work environments and higher performance. It's important to spend time with our teams outside of work. And while this might not be possible physically right now, it certainly is possible virtually. And this means maybe hosting a virtual quiz night, a virtual bar where we socialize and relax together, a movie night. Remember that these work-home barriers are blurring and it's in our best interests to make the most of that opportunity. We're building a culture, but it's a culture in service of results. But let's be realistic here. The adversity that we're all facing working remotely is not going to always be easy. Remote work has changed the conditions we need to thrive. The things that we took for granted, like the accountability of having our own office, aren't there anymore. But adversity forces you to think differently. It brings teams together, and maybe in ways that we couldn't have predicted before. We can think of the largest teams as cultures. These are giant companies, but they are countries as well. And small companies too, they all function as a culture. And one example of a culture that didn't just face adversity, but thrived in it, are the French Huguenots in the 17th century. In 1685, the French king, Louis XIV, cancelled the civil rights of the French Huguenots. And they were forced to flee from France. Hundreds of thousands of them left in haste and in grave danger, fleeing to Britain across the English Channel by boat, a desperate human tide of refugees. But this adversity gave them a common bond, much like the common goal that we just discussed. They didn't take their new environment in London and outside in Britain for granted. Instead, they got to work applying their talents. Because the Huguenots brought an extraordinary diversity of manufacturing, scientific, and artistic skills. They were able to fill a huge vacuum in Britain, which didn't have much creative engines firing at that time. The French refugees combined silk weaving, hat making, goldsmiths, printers, bookbinders, watchmakers, jewelry makers, paper makers, gunsmiths, and cabinet makers, all to catalyze the growth of high-skilled trade in England. And if we want a personal example of a Huguenot refugee who made the most of their adversity, let's look at a terrified child who was smuggled out of France in a wine casket. His name was Henri de Portal. Henri was smuggled from Bordeaux to the port of Southampton in the south of England. And Henri would go on to open a small paper mill, which over time would turn into the paper firm Portals. 270 years Portals printed British money 
that pumped around the country. 270 years of a legacy from an adverse refugee, or rather a refugee that faced adversity. And how about managing all that money that Henri de Portal managed to print? Look at Sir John Hublon. Sir John was the child of Huguenot refugees as well, and he would go on to serve as the first governor of the Bank of England, set up in 1694 when the Huguenots contributed, get this guys, around 10% of the total capital in the Bank of England. That is an insane statistic from a tiny group of refugees, a tiny culture that was forced to think differently. The Huguenots thrived in England. And this is because I would argue that minority communities, precisely because of their outsider status, are forced to go about life in an unconventional way. Similarly, we right now are being forced to think innovatively. We have a common bond, which is staying isolated at home during the COVID-19 epidemic. And if Elon Musk missing his deadlines was a cautionary tale, let this be a reassuring one. The Huguenots people had no home. They fled to a foreign country, they found themselves isolated, and they thrived. Isolation might be uncomfortable right now, and it will challenge us in unexpected places. But those unexpected challenges might lead to the unexpected growth standing side by side that we didn't know that we needed. Society and culture has changed a lot since the Huguenots fled France in 1685. But what hasn't changed? Research has shown that there's one key ingredient to the recipe for building effective teams, and that's whether it's remote, in-person, two years ago, 10 years ago, or 200 years ago, and that is trust. Trust is this all-important factor when it comes to building great teams. But it's not nebulous. It doesn't just come from this random process. Trust can be built systematically. It might take time, but there is a sequence of steps we can follow to build more trust in our teams. Today, I'll be taking you through one of those frameworks, the tolerance frameworks, which comes from PhD research into organizational resilience conducted by my mum, Barbara Bradbury. So shout out to mum for the great idea for this segment. Every step of the tolerance framework comes under a bedrock of empathy. You can't trust someone unless you believe that they care about you in some fashion. So as we go through the steps of the tolerance framework, I want you to bear in mind that if you're trying to build trust in your team, it's crucial to always be thinking about how the other person is thinking. So the first step in the tolerance framework is confidentiality. If a team member shares something private that they expect to stay private, you have to keep it that way. Anything that leaves the room without permission shatters trust instantly. So if someone's opening up to you saying how hard they're finding isolation, don't go blabbing about that over email or on the Slack. Keep that to yourself. Confidentiality is key. Step two is active listening. There's a difference between hearing someone and listening to somebody. Listening to someone, actively listening, is when we actually try and empathize. Again, we are trying to understand why they feel the way that they do. Active listening 
stops us committing a pretty bad sin, which is making value judgments. Value judgments is quite simply assessing whether something is good or bad based on our own priorities. Unfortunately, we love putting ourselves first, again, humans, selfish, but what that doesn't take into account is the priorities of someone else who might have different value judgments. Active listening takes them to one side. We want to be as objective as possible when we're talking to our teams. Third step, encourage everyone on your team to contribute. In an online meeting, for example, has everyone spoken? You can encourage different opinions by respecting them and always assuming that everybody has something unique to offer. So the first three steps, confidentiality, active listening, and encouraging contributions, they all unlock the next step, step four, which is open and honest communication. Team members have to feel that they can be honest with you. And likewise, you should be able to be honest with your team. Otherwise, you're creating unnecessary friction with them. Step five in the tolerance framework is to challenge and support your team. Any team member must be able to challenge another team member. If you can't do that, it breaks down trust because you can't have, again, step four, an open and honest conversation. So support your team members. Challenging and supporting might sound contradictory, but I assure you it's a balance. If a team member isn't taking a challenge well, for example, you don't need to lose your temper. You can instead support them along that difficult journey. So with all these steps in place, this builds up to step six, which is empowering others. When people feel that they can act on their own initiative because of your investment into them, and as a reminder of the coach Bill Campbell putting humans first, professional second, we will finally build that all-important factor of trust. When people feel empowered, they trust you. Trust takes time, but by being intentional about how we treat others, we can build healthier relationships both inside and outside the workplace. So let's review what we've learned here today. First and foremost, when it comes to building teams, empathy is key. Whether it's being realistic with our expectations or treating people as people first and professional second, taking the time to acknowledge that we're working with humans matters more than ever as the lines between work and home continue to blur. Second, define your team's goal. Great teams put we before me. And knowing why you're coming together creates the necessary alignment to become an A team of A players and make real progress. And third and finally, cultivate trust. Actively listen, encourage contributions, challenge and support, and be open in how you communicate. Whether team members feel empowered or not is the difference between whether they trust you. And when they trust you, great things can happen. When we care about what the other cares about, and sometimes you don't even have to like it, just the understanding that someone cares about something because you care about it, that builds relationship. At the end of the day, it's people, not technology, that makes things happen. Nurture your people and the fruit will follow. Thank you for listening to this episode of Subject Matter. If you enjoyed what you've heard or seen today for the first time, you can subscribe over on our YouTube channel. My name's Ben Bradbury, or you can follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever 
you get your podcasts to stay up to date. We're trying to make this episode and this season of Subject Matter as relevant and practically useful as possible for you. So if you have any feedback on how to improve the show, I would love to hear it. You can reach me directly on Twitter at Ben Bradbury underscore. So without further ado, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Subject Matter, and we'll see you next week.